Hello everyone, and welcome back to Point of Insanity Games Podcast, episode number 201. So, we've finally made it past uh, that episode number 200, so I'd like to think I've done okay uh, keeping it up all these uh, last few years, and again making it past the uh, 100 episode mark, twice now. So, uh, before we begin in the topic... Just a little bit of interesting trivia for you. If you were to have listened to every episode of Geekery in general, as well as the quickies and a couple other little things I've done, you will have, well, you will have, uh, I hope you don't consider this wasted time, but it will take you 149 hours, 57 minutes, and 44 seconds to listen to all of that. And that's that's just geekery and general related stuff that doesn't include you know of course the stuff that Chad and Lou have done with Musically Challenged uh, also doesn't include the stuff that Chad and his various guests have done with Want to Hear Something Interesting and also does not include uh what Chad and Scott have done with No, I'm sorry. Let me let me go back there. It Chad and Scott have done Want to Hear Something Interesting, and then Chad and various guests have done uh, their stuff with Whose Podcast Is It Anyway? So, quite a lot of uh, material that you can listen to on the network there. So, hopefully you've enjoyed every second of it that you've listened to. And, again, for those of you who have listened to each and every second of each program that has appeared on the channel here... Thank you. Uh, you might not think you're really doing much when you're downloading those episodes and listening to them, but trust me, it means a lot to me that people have continued to stick around and people have continued to listen to all these episodes. And hopefully you don't find it to be just pointless conversations and random ramblings. Hopefully you've uh, gained some useful information here and there. And more importantly, I hope you found it entertaining. So on to today's topic, the next in my series of episodes I've done about the Outer Planes as presented in Dungeons & Dragons 1st Edition, Manual of the Planes. So the name Arcadia, it's a a fairly common place name. You'll see it pop up in cities, both modern and and, uh, as far as where it was in the ancient world, it was the name of one of the... Uh, the districts or regions in Greece and region there named Arcadia to this day. And it was also believed to be home to uh, the god Pan. It takes its name from Arcus. And if you've ever been to a planetarium and listened to someone talk about the story of the great bear and the little bear, that's where Arcus comes from. The short version of the story is that Zeus doing what Zeus does, had a child with someone who was not Hera, and in this case it was uh, Callisto, and they had the son Arcus, and of course Hera was jealous, so she turned turned, uh, Callisto into a bear, and one day while Arcus was out hunting, he saw this bear, and he was going to shoot it. However, the bear was actually Callisto, and she forgot she was a bear, so she you know, got up and stood up to give Arcus a big hug. Well, 
Arcus thought the bear was going to attack him, so in order to protect them, Zeus turned Arcus into a bear. And then he had to put them up in the sky to protect them from Hera, but of course Hera, always wanting to get the last word in, she um, had it set up so that they could never go below the horizon. So that's why we see the constellations of the big and little bear every night during the year, at least in the Northern Hemisphere. And I forgot what latitude you have to be above in order to see them every night. I mean, I I know as you get closer to the horizon, closer, not to the horizon, closer to the equator, they are going to start to go below the horizon. But anyways, we're not here to talk about astronomy today. So, Arcadia. It has become associated with pristine wilderness and living in harmony with nature. So it is a term that ancient Greek poets and philosophers associated with the Greek golden age. And I actually talked a little bit about it the uh, last uh, planar episode I did when I talked about Tartarus. And this golden age was a time that was ruled over by Kronos. And it was said as a, it was called a golden age because people were all good and noble during this time. There was no need for law because everyone did the right thing without the need for fear of punishment or the promise of reward. So it was also a time when the earth could provide plenty of food and the gods mingled freely with humans. People would retain their youthful appearance into old age and then would die peacefully. So it was said that these souls became protective spirits that would still uh, help the mortal world. But as they say, all good things must come to an end. And according to the Greek poet Hesod, probably not pronouncing that correctly, but anyways, he said it would be followed by four other ages. Next would be the Silver Age. So this started when Zeus took control over from Kronos. This is when humanity began to decline and become in conflict with each other, and near the end of this age, they refused to worship the gods. So Zeus wiped out humanity with a great flood. After that came the Bronze Age, and Zeus created a new breed of people for this age, people who were tough, and he created them from the wood of the ash tree. However, the violent waves of Ways of people during this age is what brought about their end, and again, Zeus used another flood to wipe out humanity. Well, after this came the Heroic Age, and this age actually did not decline. It was during this age that many of the great Greek heroes we learn about in literature class were said to have lived. So it includes people such as Jason and the Argonauts, Perseus, Theseus and Heracles. Well, after this, things would decline again as we entered the Iron Age, which is our current age. And it said that this age, people would become progressively more selfish and evil until the gods would abandon humanity altogether. And I couldn't really find anything as to what is supposed to happen after the end of the Iron Age. Now, this belief that humanity has gone through these regressive stages and that there's these different ages of of humanity does have parallels in 
Hinduism, uh, Aztec beliefs, as well as Christian philosophy and theology. Now, the Aztecs, they had a belief in the five suns. So they believed that the world went through these different phases, each one ruled over by a different god. And before we begin, bing! See that little light that you uh, that just went on? That is the mispronunciation disclaimer. I have no idea how to pronounce these names, so uh, I'm probably not pronouncing them correctly. So the first one was Nahui Ocelotl. This is the jaguar sun. And the inhabitants of this age were giants created by the earth god. And the people at the end of this age were killed by jaguars. Next is Nahui Ahikadol, which is the wind sun. And during this age, inhabitants were transformed into monkeys, and the world was destroyed by hurricanes. After that came Nahui Quenhuel, which is the rain sun. And this age was destroyed by a rain of fire. And it was said that the people who survived hid in caves until they eventually became either birds or bird-like humanoids. Next, Nohui Otl, this is the water sun, and this world was flooded and the inhabitants were turned into either fish or fish-like men. Well, this brings us to our current sun, Nahui Olin, and this is the earthquake sun. Now, at the start of this sun, it said that Quetzalcoatl retrieved the bones of previous people from the underworld from the god of death, and he brought the bones back to life with his own blood. Now, the sun that presides over this era was created by the god Nanahutsin. Now, he was uh, old and sickly, though, which is why the Aztecs believed they needed to perform sacrifices to keep him strong. And at the end of this age, if the Aztecs did not provide enough sacrifices, the world would be destroyed by earthquakes. Now, in Hinduism, there also is a belief in several ages, Again, that mispronunciation disclaimer light is still on. Uh, There is first the Satya Yuga. This is the golden age, or was the golden age, when there was one religion and religious rituals were not necessary because everyone was virtuous. It was said during this time people were tall, strong, and saintly in their behavior. The earth gave plenty of food and materials, so there was no need for farming or mining. The weather was always pleasant, and there were no wars. Next is Treta Yuga. And during this age, people aren't quite as saintly, so we start to see wars become more common. The weather also starts to act up. People need to work now and farm and mine materials in order to get by. Well, this eventually leads into Dapara Yuga. This is when people start to become tainted with dark qualities and become more warlike. 
there's also more disease and the weather starts to become more extreme. And this leads us into our current age, Kali Yuga. Now in this case, the name Kali is not in reference to the goddess, but rather a demon of darkness and ignorance. Because you might remember, I talked a little bit about Kali during the Abyss episode. And while she is kind of a terrifying figure, she's not entirely as evil as I think that uh, they made her out to be in D&D. But most Hindus believe that this age started in 3102 BC. And during this age, people will become more ignorant and become more prone to lying and hypocrisy. The environment will become polluted, which will make water and food harder to come by. And according to the ancient Hindu sage Markandiya, the age of Kali Yuga will be marked by the following changes. Rulers will issue unfair taxes and no longer see it as their duty to protect people. Those in power will become a great danger to the world. And because of the pollution and corruption of the environment, people will be forced to migrate to avoid starvation. Sinful behavior will increase. Perversion will become more socially acceptable. Greed and anger will also become more commonplace. And eventually the social order will begin to break down. So, yeah, I'm going to kind of step on a little bit of a soapbox right now, but sometimes when you look at what's going on in the world now, it kind of makes you think, doesn't it? But at the end of Kali Yuga, it's not necessarily the end, though. It's rather the end of a one cycle, so a new one can begin. These four eras form one Mahayuga, which is equal to about... 4.32 million years. So, again, at the end of Kali Yuga, it's not the final end, but rather it's just, it means that a new cycle is going to begin. And finally, in Christian philosophy, St. Augustine wrote about the six ages of man, which he believed followed several key events in the Bible. Each of these ages would last for about a thousand years and would cover the time from the creation to the end of the book of Revelations. And after this time, the world would enter a seventh age of eternal peace to mirror the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week. Now, early church scholars thought it was possible to use these ages as a way to predict when the end of the world would occur. And this is pretty much a trend we've seen uh, continue into the current day, as every now and then some soothsayer or charlatan will come along and announce that he knows when the end of the world will occur. And since I'm still here recording this podcast, and you, dear listener, are still out there listening to it, well, I think it's safe to say that uh, those predictions did not come true. So that's a little bit about Arcadia. Again, this idea of uh, pastoral lifestyle and harmony with nature. 
and again, how the Greeks viewed it, as well as some, well, kind of similar ideas that we see in other cultures, where there's there's this belief that, again, there used to be this golden age, this Arcadia, where, again, we didn't lead laws because people always instinctively did the right thing. But before we move into how it is described in Manual of the Plains, here's just a quick announcement. Welcome to Bone Thrower's Theater. Nah, it's not that kind of show. It's an RPG actual play podcast. My name is Jordan, and I'm joined by our fun-loving cast. This is Aaron. Jeff here. Johnny is my name. And I'm Jeremy. And what we do is dive in and play various tabletop RPG systems and games, such as Mini 6, Fiasco, Inspectors, Monster of the Week, Fate, and more. But no matter the rule set or setting, some pretty intense storytelling hits the fan. So whether you like epic fantasy, adventure, comedy, sci-fi, horror, or just horrifically bad puns, we've got something to feast your imagination on. Listen to our full episodes and more at BoneThrowersTheater.com. And may the bones fall ever in your favor. And we're back. So in Manual of the Plains, they put Arcadia as the midway point between the Seven Heavens and Nirvana. They describe it as neutral good lawfuls, so I wouldn't necessarily see this as neutral good, but rather I guess I would see this as either lawful good with neutral tendencies or lawful neutral with good tendencies. So this is a realm where it's believed organization is used, or should be used rather, as a tool to bring about common good. So that's where I can see it relating to both, because hierarchy and uh, organization, laws, very important, but and there is certainly a tendency to want to use law and organization and hierarchy as a way to bring about the common good, but you're not always necessarily going to put that bringing about the common good front and center. So that's where I could see it act being very similar to lawful neutral, where again, you've got this good, where, where you've got this strong belief in the rule of law, um, but you do sincerely want it to bring about good. It's just, again, law and the status quo has to come first. And as far as the lawful good aspect, I guess I would see this as it is, again, this belief in well-organized systems of government and hierarchy that promote the common good. And you really do believe that, but you still, again, you got to try to realize that sometimes the group does need to come before the individual. Now, this was actually kind of a challenging episode to write in a few ways because, honestly, Manual of the Plains in 1st edition really doesn't say much about Arcadia. It's given three layers, though none of them are given their own individual names. You know, kind of like how with the, well, the Seven Heavens, each of the Seven Heavens has its own name. And only the first layer of this plane is really described in any detail. So at this point, 
I almost wonder if they were running out of ideas. Either that, or I wonder if it's possible that they were just getting near the end of the deadline, and maybe Arcadia was one of the last uh, planes they were riding, and they just like, okay, we got to get this out, so here we go. I, they really didn't start to add more to it until 2nd edition with the Planescape setting. They did bring the layers down to two layers, and they ended up having the third layer merge with Mechanus, or Nirvana. And the reason they give is because it, during this time, the plane was starting to move from lawful good to lawful neutral. And another reason there, I thought it would be a little challenging to write this uh, this episode is, in addition to the lack of real, you know, information, there's only two gods that they place here, which we'll discuss them in a moment. But it is described as a similar fashion to Arcadia in mythology, as it's a pastoral paradise where trees grow in perfect rows, and also there's beautiful flower beds that don't need to be tended. Also, then this I found was interesting, is that each tree here grows a specific type of magic potion, which acts as a double strength potion. So while you've got your normal healing potion that does 2d4 plus 2, so you can find a fruit tree here that produces a fruit that does 4d4 plus Four, so pretty cool, I guess. Um, however, the problem is each of these fruits only lasts one d10 days, regardless of the steps that are taken to preserve them. Also, the plane is surrounded by a great sphere, half light, half dark. So on this plane, there's no dawn and there's no dust. Day and night just kind of instantly transition into each other. It's also home to peaceful animals that are said to be uh, slightly more intelligent than their normal real-world counterparts. However, they have pure white eyes that can see through illusions. So of the two gods listed here, the first one is a fictional one, and that is Clangdagon Silverbeard. This is the dwarven god of war. The other is the Babylonian god Marduk. And Manual of the Plains does say that these two gods are on good terms because they share similar interests. However, they don't compete for followers. So let's talk about Marduk. And he is uh, one of the more well-known Babylonian gods. And he has been associated with a variety of things, such as magic, law, rulership, rain, and vegetation. Now, the most famous story about him has to do with Tiamat. And I've probably talked a little bit about it here and there, but uh, the story goes that Tiamat was conspiring to kill the lesser generation of gods, the one that Marduk belonged to. So it was said none of the gods were brave enough to try to tackle Tiamat and prevent her from killing them. So that's where Marduk steps in. And he is given sovereignty 
over the universe. Uh, it's said that he proved his power by uh, telling a constellation to destroy itself and then reform. Though I believe in some variations of the story, or uh, because there are a couple different versions, he does the same thing but with just a robe. But uh, hey, I guess telling a constellation to destroy itself and then reassemble, that's more impressive than telling a shirt to, okay shirt, unravel yourself. Okay shirt, now reassemble yourself. So I'm going to read a little bit from the Epic of Creation. This is from Oxford University Press's Myths from Mesopotamia, translated by Stephanie Dolly. And longtime listeners to the show, you know I've read from this uh, particular book before. So, they gave him an unfaceable weapon to crush the foe. Go and cut off the life of Tiamat. Let her winds bear the blood to us as good news. The gods, his fathers, thus decreed the destiny of the Lord. They sent him on the path of peace and obedience. He fashioned a bow, designated as a weapon, fashioned the arrow, set it in the string. He lifted up a mace and carried it in his right hand, slung the bow over and his quiver over his side put lightning in front of him. His body was filled with an ever-blazing fire. He made a net to encircle Tiamat within it, marshaled the four winds so that no part of her could escape. South wind, north wind, east wind, west wind, the gift of his father Anu. He kept them close to net at his side. He created the Imhulu wind, the tempest, the whirlwind, the four winds, the seven winds, the tornado, the unfaceable facing wind. He released the winds which he had created, seven of them. They advanced behind him to make turmoil inside Tiamat. The Lord raised the flood weapon, his great weapon, and mounted the frightful, unfaceable storm chariot. He had yoked it to a team of four and had harnessed to its side Slayer, Pitiless, racer, and flyer. Their lips were drawn back. Their teeth carried poison. They know not exhaustion. They can only devastate. He stationed on right his fearsome fight and conflict. On the left, battle to knock down every contender, clothed in a cloak of awesome armor. His head crowned with a terrible radiance. The Lord set out and took the road, and set his face towards Tiamat, who raged out of control. In his lips he gripped a spell. In his hand he grasped a herb to counter poison. And they thronged about him. The gods thronged about him. The gods, his fathers, thronged about him. The gods thronged about him. The Lord drew near and looked into the middle of Tiamat. He was trying to find out the strategy of Kingu, her lover. As he looked, his mind became confused. His will crumbled. His actions were muddled. As for the gods, his helpers who marched at his side, when they saw the warrior, the leader, their looks were strange. Tiamat cast her spell. She did not even turn her neck. In her lips, she was holding falsehood, lies. How powerful is your attacking force, O Lord of the gods! The whole assembly of them has gathered to your place. 
but he ignored her blandishments. The Lord lifted up the flood weapon, his great weapon, and sent a message to Tiamat, who feigned goodwill, saying, Why are you so friendly on the surface, when your depths conspire to muster a battle force? Just because the sons were noisy and disrespectful to their fathers, should you, who gave them birth, reject compassion? You named Kingu as a lover. You appointed him to rights of Anu power, wrongfully his. You sought out evil for Anshar, king of the gods. So you have compounded your wickedness against the gods, my fathers. Let your hosts prepare. Let them grind, gird themselves with your weapons. Stand forth, and you and I shall do combat. So after that, they engaged in their battle, and that's when he used the wind to trap her, uh, forced the wind down her mouth, and then shot a lightning bolt down it so that it would cause her to explode. And some people say that we find a modern parallel in the movie Jaws, where we see the two heroes, and I forget their names, uh, Brody and I forgot the other guy, where they uh, destroyed Jaws in a similar fashion. And after the battle, Marduk, he creates the world uh, from Tiamat's body. Not going to read that part. I already read that many, many, many episodes ago. I'm wanting to say it was either my episode on crafting a religion or my episode when I was talking about the hero's journey, but go back and listen to those episodes. I, I read it somewhere else, but anyways. Then he has to deal with Kingu, and he defeats Kingu, reclaims the Tablets of Destiny, and then he mixes Kingu's blood with clay to create humanity for the sole purpose of serving the gods. So, how do we use Arcadia in a D&D campaign. And honestly, because there's so little information they give about it, there's only a few ideas I had. Because they do mention with the Dwarven War God uh, that uh, he has fortresses where he he's constantly having his armies siege his fortresses so they can test out new battle methods. So that might be interesting, especially if you're doing an all-dwarf campaign. Maybe you have to go to Arcadia to uh, help Silverbeard test out a new battle plan. Now, since Marduk is listed as being a foe of Dragonkind, if the party has to face off against a, a horde of dragons, perhaps they might need to do something to gain his favor, and that might help him. that might help them in their battles. Now, I mentioned that you've got the animals here that can see through illusions. Those sound like those would be interesting animal followers. So maybe you gotta might want to send your party there to go try to uh, get some of these animals to be animal followers or animal companions. Now, the second and third planes, those do have a bit of potential. Uh, mainly because since there's not really anything said about them you could pretty much do whatever you want with them. Now, as I believe in Manual of the Plains, or I'm sorry, not Manual of the Plains, uh, Planescape, they put several of the Egyptian gods on the second layer, and they made it more or less a, a desert. So, 
you know, again, if you are running an Egyptian-based campaign, you might find yourself there as well. And the 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 bottommost layer that eventually merged with uh, Mechanus, they described that as a realm where people were forcibly being converted to a lawful alignment, which is what caused it to uh, shift from it would cause it to shift from lawful good to lawful neutral, and thus why it uh, merged with the other plane. So maybe one idea you could take from that is, well, maybe your players, they're chaotic in alignment, and they've been brought to this plane where they're trying to be re-indoctrinated into a more lawful good or lawful neutral religion, and they have to try to escape that plane. That idea might be a little bit better suited, though, if you are running an all-evil or an all-neutral campaign. Other than that, I mean, those other two layers are pretty much open for whatever you decide you want to do with them. (laughs) Well, that's all I have to say about Arcadia for now. So my next episode, I'm going to touch on its opposite, um, Acheron, which is situated between Nirvana and the Nine Hells. So again, it's kind of the flip side where it's either lawful evil tending towards neutrality or lawful neutral tending towards evil. Other than that, I think there's only two other planes I really have to touch, and that would be Pandemonium and the Twin Paradises, which I do plan to tackle. Those are going to be a little bit more challenging, though, because as far as I can tell... There aren't really any mythological uh, counterparts to those. So, a little preview of coming attractions. Hopefully something you'll look forward to. Well, with that said, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the last 201 episodes. And hopefully you'll stick around. And, uh, well, if I make 201 more episodes, hopefully you'll be uh, sticking around and tuning into those. So, have a good evening or morning, or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter at poigamestudio. Do you do a podcast about Dungeons & Dragons, role-playing games, video games, or other topics of geek interest? Would you like to cross-promote your podcast on geekery in general? Then drop us a line on our Facebook page at POI Game Studio or POI Network, or contact us through our website at POIGamestudio.com, and we'll set something up.